You're listening to the sermon podcast of Galveston Bible Church. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit galvestonbible.org. But mostly, from wherever you're listening, we hope that the Lord ministers to you through this week's message. Okay, I'm going to ask you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, and we will be looking at verses 1 through 7. Last week we began to look at the qualifications of an elder in the church, and we discovered that it is a high and very serious calling. Today we're actually going to get into the qualifications, spending more time on some than others. Most, if not all of these qualifications, should be present, not only in the leaders, but in anyone who professes faith in Jesus. The main reason that these qualifications are required of leaders is, as we mentioned last week, is because the reputation of the church is at stake. We actually see this in both the first and the last qualifications that are listed. The first qualification is that an elder must be above reproach, and we'll get into that uh, today, but the last qualification is that he must be well thought of by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace. The reputation of Jesus' church is at stake. And just think about how many times have we seen, even in our own lifetime, leaders in the church that fall into an immoral behavior and bring reproach on the name of Christ. We saw this in the uh, Catholic Church sexual abuse scandal. We see it in the prosperity gospel where uh, these, these preachers, these pastors swindle people out of hundreds and thousands of dollars. We see it every time a pastor is accused of embezzlement or uh, infidelity or domestic violence or some other civil crime. Since pastors have the potential to do so much damage to the church and to Christ's name, their example must be the best. Their behavior in the world must be exemplary. The result is that Paul gives qualifications for an elder here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. So as we go through these qualifications, I want you to ask yourself three main questions. The first question is this, do the current elders in my church, in this church, meet these qualifications? The second question is, do those aspiring to this office, any elder candidates or those uh, who in the future may aspire to this, do they meet these qualifications? And then the third question that I want you to ask is, do I meet these standards? We're only going to get through a handful of these qualifications today, but we'll read them all, and then we'll finish next week. So 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, this is the very word of God. This saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach. The husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. Not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of 
by outsiders so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Let's pray. Father, as we come to the preaching and the hearing of your word, I pray that you would empower me. I pray that we would all be engaged, that we would see that although these qualifications are listed for elders, these are are things that should be evident in all of our lives as we um, represent Jesus uh, in our neighborhoods, in our places of work, in our schools, and wherever we go. And I pray that, um, Holy Spirit, you would convict us where we need conviction today, and that you would conform this church into the image of Christ, every single member. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Paul begins verse 2 with the phrase, Therefore an overseer must be above reproach. That word above reproach literally means one who has nothing with which the adversary can point out in his life and therefore accuse him. This is a general statement. That that statement above reproach is a general statement which is actually clarified specifically in the following qualifications that we'll see in the remainder of this week and next week. In other words, uh, you can ask the question, in what ways could the church's adversaries seize an elder in the church and bring a charge against him? And the answer is these qualifications. The answer is in his, both his public and his private life. This is not to imply that an elder has reached sinless perfection in this life. Absolutely no one can do that. We, we know that. Even the greatest men and women in the Bible and throughout church history fall into sin. Let me give you a few examples. You have uh, people like Moses and, and Paul who both lost their tempers in a public way. You have people like Peter uh, who played the hypocrite and was cowardly in the church. You have people like David who committed adultery and, and trusted in his military strength rather than trusting in God. You have people like Hezekiah who loved his wealth. And you have people like Solomon who loved his women. Finally, think about Aaron, uh, who was the first high priest, the one entrusted with with teaching uh, the word of God to the people, instructing them in the worship of God. He gave in to peer pressure, and he fashioned a golden image, which the people worshiped. The bottom line is that people are sinners, and no one is perfect. But a leader in the church must not have anything in his life that an unbeliever can bring up against him and make the church look bad. The leader's reputation must be able to withstand assaults from both outside the church and within the church. So as we look at these qualifications, what we see is we see that the first one that defines what it means to be above reproach is that an elder must be the husband of one wife. Okay, now what does that mean? Well, neither I nor any of the commentators that I read that I respect believe that this has anything to do with his marital status. In other words, it is not saying that an elder must be married or he is not qualified to lead in the church. Nor is it saying that an elder cannot be married and then divorced and then remarried again. That would mean two wives. Now, polygamy is completely out of the question because even in the first century, among the Romans, polygamy was looked down upon. 
by and large, the Romans did not have more than one wife. Now, they may have had several mistresses, but they only had one wife. The literal rendering of this term, um, to be the husband of one man, means that he must be uh, a, uh, the husband of one wife, means that he must be a one-woman man. A one-woman man, which implies sexual purity. This means that if he is married, that he is devoted to his wife and to no other woman. He cannot be sexually involved with other women, either physically or emotionally. Also, he must not be looking at pictures or videos or TV shows or movies that would incite lust in him or going to places that would incite lust in him as well. Now, we've talked about this many times before. Most, if not all men, uh, stumble in the area of lust. But the elder must strongly guard against this to ensure that this does not become a pattern in his life and therefore disqualify him from this office. So this qualification has more to do with sexual purity. And it's fitting that this is at the top of the list because this sin, more than any other sin, has disqualified men from the pastoral ministry. This sin, as we've talked about many times before, makes the, the top of most of Paul's lists of sins in the New Testament. If you did a simple internet search um, on sexual sin among pastors or leaders in the church, you would get hundreds of hits. This is a very serious sin that many people fall into. David, a man after God's own heart, fell into the sin of sexual temptation. I could give dozens of current examples from our uh, church culture, but I'm just going to give you two. Uh, the first is one that I've mentioned several times before in this church, but it, it bears repeating because it fits along perfectly with what we're talking about, about being above reproach. Uh, it is, it's, it's the website Ashley Madison, uh, which was a, a website that was set up for the express purpose of helping people to have a secret extramarital affair. That was what the website was set up for. In August of 2015, the website got hacked and thousands of names were exposed. Sadly, included in those names were many church leaders. In an article that appeared in Christianity Today, the author said this, quote, based on my conversations with leaders from several denominations in the U.S. and Canada, I estimate that at least 400 church leaders, pastors, elders, staff, deacons, etc., will be resigning Sunday. This is a significant movement, uh, moment of an embarrassment for the church, and it should be. To be honest, the number of pastors and church leaders on Ashley Madison is much lower than the number of those looking to have an affair. Yet, there is still much that we must consider in the midst of this embarrassment, end quote. Embarrassment is a good word, and embarrassment translates into reproach, reproaching the name of Christ. The other example comes from a Gospel Coalition article entitled, They Will Know You Are Conference Christians by Your Porn. There the author began the article with, these, with this warning. He said this, quote, What 
you do in the privacy of your hotel room can be a witness against the gospel. He then goes on to note the following, quote, A number of years ago, a national conference for church youth directors was held at a major hotel in a city in the Midwest. Youth pastors by the hundreds flooded into that hotel and took nearly every room. At the conclusion of the conference, the hotel manager told the conference administrator that the number of guests who tuned into the adult movie channel broke the previous record, far and away outdoing any other convention in the history of the hotel. End quote. What I want you to know about this is that this kind of activity among church leaders is a witness against the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a sin by which the watching, unbelieving world can grab us and accuse us. You say that we're not supposed to do this, but yet you guys are doing it yourselves. This is why it is important for a leader in the church to be above reproach. The great Puritan pastor Richard Baxter said the following. He wrote a book um, uh, to the pastors of his day, and it is just as fitting today. Here's an excerpt of what he said. Take heed to yourselves, lest your example contradict your doctrine, and lest you lay such stumbling blocks before the blind as may be the occasion of their ruin. Lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hindrance of the success of your own labors. Take heed to yourselves, lest you live in those sins which you preach against in others. Take heed to yourselves, lest you cry down sin, and yet do not overcome it. Lest while you seek to bring it down in others, you bow to it and become its slaves yourselves. End quote. Once again, this applies to everyone, but especially to leaders. Elders in the church must be sexually committed to their wives. Why? Because it honors God, it honors their wives, and because the unbelieving world is watching. And they're not only watching the leaders in the church, they're also watching everyone in the church. And so let me ask you to examine your own life and let me ask you to, uh, to ask yourself these questions. Are you sexually pure? Are you being sexually pure? If you're married, are you devoted to your spouse and to them alone or are your eyes or your heart wandering? If you're not married, are you devoted to your one day to be spouse or are your eyes and heart currently wandering. This is such a devastating sin that has plunged so many people into ruin. Okay, so that is the first qualification. The next three seem to be closely related, so we'll go through these rather quickly, asking once again the same three questions that I told you to ask earlier. Uh, do, do these uh, qualifications characterize the current leaders in our church? Do they characterize those who are seeking this office of elder? And finally, do they characterize my own life?
So the second qualification is this, that an elder must be sober-minded, must be sober-minded. Uh, sober-minded means to be temperate. It means to be self-controlled. And although it does have a lot to deal with the alcohol consumption of a leader, um, I believe that that one is dealt with more so when we get to he must not be addicted to uh, wine later on. So I believe that here he is mostly talking about, he is using it metaphorically. Namely, he is implying that of being alert, of being vigilant, of being clear-headed. The leader in Jesus' church must possess an inner strength to refrain from any excess that would dull his alertness. An elder must be vigilant, especially, especially in these times. There's so much deception that is going on in the world and in the church that if an elder, if a leader in the church is not clear-headed, then he will be sucked into this deception and he will then lead the rest of the church into that deception as well. So he must be sober-minded. The third qualification closely related to this is that he must be self-controlled. This term uh, covers a range of meaning, but its general sense is of control over one's behavior, the impulses, and especially the emotions beneath it. He is in control of his faculties, so to speak. He doesn't go into extremes of emotions. You look at him, and he appears to be held together well. And this is a very, very important quality in a leader. Moving into the next qualification, I believe that when an elder is sober-minded, when he is self-controlled in his public and private life, then he will also be respectable. He will be respectable. This is the man who places limitations on what he says and does. He knows that he has many freedoms. He has freedoms in regard to his speech and to his conduct. A lot of things that he's not going to be arrested for. But he intentionally limits those as to not offend someone unnecessarily. Now, I will say this. I appreciate all that President Trump has done for the pro-life movement and for the U.S. economy and for our national defense. I appreciate that he is bold and undeterred in a lot of his policies, but he is a classic example of the opposite of this quality. He does not place any limits on his speech or on his conduct, and therefore he does not always command respect from the opposite party and even from those in his own party. His words are often mean-spirited towards his political opponents and downright ungodly. Now I know that he is not an elder in the church, not even a leader in the church, but I have seen many, many church leaders defend his behavior and his words and even use those same words regarding people that they do not like. And, and I believe that when they do this, that all they do is they weaken the influence that the church has in this world. They weaken it. Oh, that's how Christians talk. Oh, that's how Christians treat other people that they don't like. Didn't Jesus say, love your enemies? Oh, but I guess that doesn't apply here. 
An elder, however, carefully calculates how his words and his actions will be received, and therefore he chooses his words carefully. He moves out in action very carefully. Oh, he will not hold back when truth is at stake, but he acts and speaks respectfully. At the end of the day, you may disagree with him, but you respect the way that he handled himself. So let me ask you, are you respectable? Are you respectable? Uh, do you, uh, do the things that you say in public or the things that you post on social media, do they command respect? Are they intentionally mean-spirited for the purpose of making someone angry or are they posted or said in love? Are you speaking the truth in love? You need to be very careful about what you say and what you do in public. Moving on, a fifth qualification for a leader, an elder in the church is that he must be hospitable. He must practice hospitality. This word literally means a lover of strangers. A lover of strangers. And I believe that it is mainly directed at fellow Christians but can also include unbelievers. Here's what I mean by that. Back in the first century, many people were coming to the Lord. Um, churches were being established and missionaries were being sent out from those churches. You would not want a traveling missionary or even a traveling uh, brother or sister in Christ to stay at any of the public inns that were available in those days because they were very dirty and downright dangerous. In one of the first century plays, one man asks his companion where they're going to lodge for the night, and the answer is where the fleas are the fewest. Plato speaks of an innkeeper, of the, the innkeeper of being like a pirate who holds his guests to ransom. These inns uh, tended to be dirty, uh, to be expensive, and above all, they tended to be very immoral. Therefore, given the dangers of travel in the empire at the time, and given the economic uncertainties faced by many of the believers of that time, the early church mission and churches depended on those who would open up their homes and share their goods with those who are traveling. This is why it is so important, and this is why Christians are urged, even commanded, to open up their houses and to feed other traveling Christians. And the church leader, the church elder, should be setting the example for hospitality. Now, you might be wondering how this applies to us today. Since our hotels uh, for the most part, are clean and safe and relatively inexpensive. Before we get into how that exactly applies, let me just give you a word of caution. I know that it says a lover of strangers, and the tendency might be, man, if I really want to fulfill this command, then I need to be looking for people who are in need, even complete strangers, and I need to be opening up my house to them. I would, use, I would urge you to use caution there, because there are a lot of people out there who are very dangerous, people who are scamming other people, and people who are intent on harming you. And so uh, to keep your family from being jeopardized, uh, I would urge you 
not to invite strangers into your house. Um, one of the practices that I uh, usually do is if I see someone in need, I will put them up in a hotel for the night or I will buy them a meal. Normally, I will not invite them into my house because I don't know who they are and I don't want to put my family in danger. But that aside, I believe that this qualification applies uh, to elders and really to everyone else because this is, we'll see later that it, it definitely applies to widows and Paul elsewhere talks about it applying to everyone, that, that we are to show hospitality. So how do we, we do this? Well, Here's a, a couple practical ways uh, that we can do this in our congregation. We can begin with the missionaries. The missionaries that we support in this church or missionaries that we know other uh, churches may support. Here's what I want to say regarding that. When missionaries are in town, there is no reason whatsoever that they should have to stay in a hotel. There's no reason that they should have to spend money to stay in a hotel. We, as the members of this church as believers in Christ, should be opening up our houses to them. Now, besides it being a command, it can also be quite a blessing, right? You have these missionaries who are, are traveling, who are spreading the gospel in foreign countries, and they come into your house with these wonderful stories about how the gospel is being proclaimed around the world. So that's the first way uh, that we can be obedient to this command is by inviting the missionaries that we support and others support into our house. Another way, and I'm going to get real personal right here, is by actually inviting and welcoming people in this church and in your neighborhood into your house as well. Now before you tune me out, hear me out, okay? I know that some people in here are thinking I'm an introvert. I don't do that kind of stuff, right? Um, I know that in uh, corporate worship, when we come together on a, a Sunday morning uh, under normal circumstances, when we're actually able to meet together, we see the same people week after week, and we actually think that we know them. But I would submit to you that we're practically strangers. You may sit next to that person every week, and you may even know their name, and in a lot of cases, you don't know their name. Who's that girl with the blonde hair or whatever? You don't know their name. And I would venture to say that you probably don't know if, if a woman shows up uh, by herself, if she does have a husband at her home that is an unbeliever, or if she has children or a family. You don't know uh, what kind of job they do, and if they like their job, or if they hate their job, or if they're in danger of losing their job, or if there's some um, ethical issues that are associated with their job. You don't know the, 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 the current sins that they're struggling with in their lives. You don't know if they're happy or they're depressed. And I think a lot of us are content um, uh, to do that, uh, to remain strangers, because we know that relationships are a lot of work, right? And, and I just don't have the time to get involved in a relationship right now. I don't have the time uh, to actually probe and to see how you are doing physically and spiritually because then I might have to get involved. And so we come here, and I believe that many of us are still strangers even though we see each other week after week. Here's what I would say to those who are a little sketchy about getting to know others. Aren't you so glad 
that Jesus reached out to you? Aren't you so glad that Jesus did not say, oh, I'm too busy to take 30 years out of my life and go down and to meet these people? Aren't you so glad that he made the greatest sacrifice so that he could get to know you and so that you could get to know him? Aren't you so glad that as Paul says in Ephesians 2.13, that we who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ? Aren't you so glad that he took the time to get to know you, to invite you? He said, come to me. And won't you follow his example? Well, here are some practical ways practical steps that you can do to accomplish this. First, here's what I'm going to encourage you to do. Begin by talking to someone in church or in your neighborhood that you normally wouldn't talk to. A neighbor that you see walking by every day or see going into their house, take an opportunity to talk to them, right? Go up to someone in the church. Come earlier than the worship starts or stay later after worship is finished and actually... Point out someone in the church and go up and talk to them. Introduce yourself. I'm not talking you have to have a long conversation, but get to know them. Hey, I, I see you week after week and I don't even know your name. This is my name. And then engage in conversation. When you have spent time doing that, then I would encourage you to move to the next step and actually invite them over to your house for a meal or for fellowship. And here's what I want to say. You can do it, all right? Yes, you can. You're thinking, no, 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 no. Yes, you can. You're going to find out that the more that you start to meet people and talk to them, you're actually going to want to, uh, to hang around them more and invite them over. Uh, and even if you don't see eye to eye with them, there's opportunities for you to become closer to them even closer to your neighbors. And you might be able to help them. They might be able to help you um, as you're uh, going through this life, which can be so challenging. So here's a, a challenge that I do want to give to you. I would encourage you as a family um, or as an individual uh, to sit down sometime today or this week and put together a plan of how you can actually practice hospitality in your own life. Is there anyone in the church that you would like to get to know better? You know, go up and talk to them uh, and then invite them over. So if you don't put together a plan, what I'm saying right now, you're just going to forget in a day or so, uh, for sure in a week, and it'll be like, no, I don't even remember what he said. So um, take some actions to do that. A sixth qualification, moving on, uh, and the last one that we're going to talk about today is that an elder must be able to teach. He must be able to teach. Why? Why? Well, as mentioned last week, this is the primary responsibility of an elder. The primary responsibility of an elder is to teach and to preach the Word of God. Why? Because this is what the world and the church need most. Our chief purpose in this world is to glorify God. That is our number one goal. That is why we were created. And the only way that you can properly glorify God is if you know who he is and if you know what he requires of you. And both of those things are revealed and only 
revealed in the word of God. And this is where teaching comes in. The leader in the church must spend time studying the word of God and looking for opportunities to teach others what he has learned. Implied in 1 Timothy 5.17 is that some elders stand out among the other elders as particularly being gifted in the area of teaching. Here's what 1 Timothy 5.17 says. It says this, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. Now you may have noticed um, that this qualification is the only one that relates to the elder's giftedness and function. And so you might be wondering, in the midst of all of these moral, moral qualifications of sexual purity, of, of sober-mindedness, of, of being respectable, of being hospitable, why in the world would Paul insert the function of an elder here and talk about his giftedness? Well, I think that the reason is pretty clear. And that is because we've been talking about, uh, and we've been saying all along, how the reputation of the church is at stake in a leader. Therefore, not only must a leader's uh, in the church, not only must his words reflect the truths of the gospel, his life must also reflect those same truths. Earlier I quoted Richard Baxter, and I'm going to quote uh, the same thing again. He said this, Take heed to yourselves, lest you unsay with your lives what you say with your tongues, and be the greatest hindrance of the success of your own labors. This is why the teaching and the preaching of the Word of God must be accompanied by the moral character of the man of God. If it is not, then he will not be taken seriously. His sermon or his teaching may be theologically sound. It may be perfectly delivered. But in the end, it will fall on deaf ears. Because it is not accompanied by a character, an inward character that reflects the truths that he's teaching. So an elder must be a skilled teacher. Pastor and author John MacArthur lists six criterias for a skilled um, teacher, and I'm just going to list them without going into much detail. But the first is that uh, an elder uh, regarding this criteria for a skilled teacher must have the gift of teaching. Okay, he must have the spiritual gift of teaching. Secondly, he must have a deep understanding of doctrine, those truths in the scriptures. Third, he must maintain an attitude of humility. An attitude of humility. Sometimes um, if, if, if someone is really gifted in the area of teaching, they might walk away and think, man, I nailed that. They might think I'm all that uh, because of the way that they were able to teach or present something. And so humility must um, uh, mark uh, a, a, an elder as well. A fourth criteria is that his life must be marked by holiness. Holiness, and that's what we're talking about. A fifth criteria is that he must be a diligent student of the Bible so that he can teach the truth and also at the same time avoid error. There's a ton of error out there. And if you're not diligently studying it, you could go off in the wrong direction. 
And sixth and final criteria is that must, he must have a strong, uh, he must have strong courage and consistent convictions. In other words, he must not abandon the truth and shipwreck his own faith. At the close of his ministry, he should be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished my course. I have kept the faith. So those are the qualifications of an elder. And we're going to stop there and we'll, we'll pick up the remaining qualifications next Sunday. But before we close, I just want to recap so that these things are fresh in your mind. What we saw today is that the qualifications um, uh, for a leader in God's church are very, very high because a leader represents Jesus and his church in a way that most others do not. Therefore, the leader must diligently study and be able to teach the word of God because it is the spirit of God working through the word of God that transforms the lives of people. It transforms unbelievers. It, it transfers them from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. It, it, it transforms followers of Jesus from one degree of glory to another. Therefore, an elder must study and teach the word of God and all along his life must reflect the character of God. Also, he must be sexually pure in his thoughts, in his words, and in his actions. He must be respectable in his behavior, not unnecessarily offending others. Oh, he will offend people because the gospel is offensive, but it will not be in the way that he presents the gospel. In other words, it will be the gospel that offends, not the one presenting the gospel that offends. And finally, a leader in the church must be welcoming. He must love meeting the people in the church. He must love getting to know them, and he must be welcoming them into his home. These qualifications must be present in the life of an elder, but they should also be present in the life of anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus. Maybe you're not called to be a teacher, but I can guarantee that you are called to be above reproach. You are called to be sexually pure. You are called to be respectable. You are called to be hospitable. And it's my prayer that you will have listened today and that if there's any area in your life where the Holy Spirit is convicting you, that you would stop right now and that you would plead with him to remove that sin from your life and to conform you into the image of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it cuts, and it cuts really deep. I pray, God, that we would not just be hearers today, but that we would be doers, that we would be um, above reproach, that we would realize that the world is looking at us. They're seeing how we act. They're seeing how we handle situations. <coughs> They're listening to our words they're watching our actions. May we represent Jesus in a proper way. And when we do sin, may we be quick to confess that and not to excuse it. Lord, may we be welcoming to uh, strangers and 
unbelievers and even those in the church. May we open um, our houses to our fellow brothers and sisters and get to know them and see if there's any needs that they have and meet those needs if we're able. Father, conform us into the image of Jesus and we pray this in his name. Amen.